You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. If we turn with me uh, over to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to be looking at verses 2 through 9 specifically this morning. I want to take a minute just to remind us of kind of where we've, we've come. We're in this series of Follow Jesus. And I want us to remember that foundation that we laid a couple weeks ago found in 2 Timothy 2.8, right? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This stands as that foundation because apart from Christ, living for Christ is pointless. The only reason we can pursue the life God has for us is because he first sacrificed his own body on the cross as payment for our sins and rose again to secure our salvation and now intercedes for us as a savior who is alive today. So remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. If you didn't have a chance to to listen to that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because it it really is foundational to everything moving forward. And and the reason for that importance is if I think moving forward, I can just do a lot of things to earn favor from God, we've missed the point of that foundation. So go back, listen to that foundation. Those are very key things for us as we move forward. So now, in this moment, we live for Christ. Christ. Not to earn something from Christ because what more do we need than the security we have in him for the future? But instead, he shapes and molds us to be more like Jesus so that we can begin to enjoy, even now, the life he designed for our good. So I wanna dive in here to Philippians. We haven't, we're still dealing with Paul here. Different people, different place, different time but we're here in Philippians chapter four, starting in verse two. I encourage you to follow along with me. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, which here, just a little rabbit trail, I believe is a personal name of an individual named Suzukos. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the, God. and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received 
and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So the key principle here as we continue our series, our focus this morning is gonna be living for Jesus. How do we live for Jesus? And the key principles found in this passage will help us live for Jesus in our everyday lives. How do we start putting those practical pieces together? And that's what we wanna try to accomplish this morning as we reflect on these things that, that Paul challenges the church of Philippi in. And so the first thing that we see here is that we are to pursue unity despite our differences. I love that it was just shared that one of the key things for us to be praying for is unity. Right? Disunity and the impact of disunity goes far beyond just the relational uh, impact. Now it's interesting here as we reflect on these, uh, these uh, couple of ladies here that have this uh, conflict going on uh, Paul does not mention what the conflict is. We have no idea exactly what is going on or who maybe as, is at fault here, if it's one way or the other. It, it also does not appear to be some sort of doctrinal issue or issue of the gospel as it relates to the message of the gospel. Uh, but it was such an issue that it gets to Paul while he's in Rome and he feels compelled to address the issue in his letter. So this disunity that has occurred is a significant one. And yet he handles it differently than he does doctrinal issue conflict. And he felt as he addressed this that he needed to point out why it was important for this. One person once wrote about the church this, he said, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. Now, we may laugh a little bit at something like that, and maybe we even agree to a certain <laughs> bit about that. But, but I want us to consider, as, as Paul often does, is to consider the impact the lack of unity has on the gospel and the influence of the church and, and specifically the individual local expressions of his church in the local church. So consider the gospel impact that it has. Understand that unresolved disagreements hinders our ability to reflect Christ well. Or I think we, most of us understand that those who do not yet know Christ, the world, is ready to pounce on any conflict, any rift, any misstep of the church and its people. They are quick to highlight our inability to reflect what we say we want to reflect. And so all the more we must work diligently for the sake of the gospel to not only proclaim the hope of Jesus boldly, but also to protect the testimony. The example of God's people should reflect Christ well to an ever-watching world. And more than ever before, the world is watching. We give many opportunities for the world to be involved in our lives. We do this, obviously, in the place that we come together. What does that place look like? What do they stand for? What do they seem to be about? When someone enters into the building for whatever it is, and what's awesome is this place, specifically Hope, has been used in a variety of ways to host community events and, and things of the like. What is their impression as they walk in and they walk out? 
Do they find it a place that reflects well the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it, is it the same as the world when you exit these doors? We think about the impact that we have. We should take a moment and think, do I have conflict that is causing the gospel to be diminished, the impact of the gospel to be diminished? We open up our social media accounts to the world around us. What does it reflect to the world? Does it reflect unity? Or do we always have something negative to say about what's going on in our own personal lives? It's amazing how much personal stuff we tend to share on social media, good, bad, and everything else in between. How does it reflect our relationship with Jesus as we talked even a couple weeks ago? Or do people have to go digging to find out that we're a follower of Jesus? Would, would our example show there's something different about them and that something different is they love Jesus? More than ever, we are before a watching world. If the gospel unifies us to Christ and he is shaping and molding our hearts to be more like Jesus, then our lives should reflect that, even in the midst of conflict. So we need to consider the gospel impact. Realize it's more than just us and our current circumstance that it impacts. It impacts the testimony of the gospel. But then we're, we're called to seek restoration. We must be quick to resolve our differences. Again, not only for our sake, but for the sake of the testimony of the gospel we proclaim. We would do well to remember the words of Jesus in John 13, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will they know your disciples of Jesus? Because you love one another well. As James 1 and Ephesians 4 teach us, we must be slow to take offense and always eager to forgive. So we live for Jesus by working in unity with one another on issues that are not of gospel or doctrinal importance, and we should seek unity wherever possible for the sake of the gospel. And so this is how Paul is finishing up this letter and helping them understand, listen, disunity among yourselves will work detrimentally towards the mission of the gospel. So we too need to take this into consideration. But secondly, we need to understand that to live for Jesus, this passage here talks much about having the peace of God. So how do we find the peace of God in the midst of life's issues. And verses four through eight help walk us through thinking through that. The opposite of living for Jesus is worry. And worry is thinking that we possess some amount of control in ways that God never designed us to have any power over. It's making us think that if I just am consumed with this thing, if I can just figure it out, if I can just you know, give myself more time to, to figure out the intricacies of this problem, this issue, this conflict that I'm, I am having, somehow I will be able to overcome it. Worry says I'm the one in control. The peace of God says, no, God is the one who's in control. 
Consider the anxieties, the worries of our lives. And for some of you, just considering for a moment all the anxieties and worries of life will cause you to worry and have anxiety. So with that risk clearly stated, think of the, the issues and the conflict and anxiety that are just our own little family units cause us. Sometimes every day. For those of you who are raising children, as I am, those seasons tend to come in gigantic waves of learning how to give patience and grace in seasons where your flesh says, I don't want to give patience and grace. Extend that out to our extended families. That only increases oftentimes our anxiety and worry about the life choices maybe we're seeing our siblings, our parents, our grandparents, our uncles, our cousins, as we expand that circle out, those worries, those anxieties, those frustrations continue to grow. Think about our our work environments. It's a lot of unknown in any business, in any field that we find ourselves in. Does it cause us to worry, to be consumed with anxiety? Tied in with this, obviously, would be then our finances. We see the shortfall, we see the risk, we, we have unexpected expenses, we have a variety of things that seem to pile up all at once. We, we, we see that we, you know, we've got things that are happening, we've gotta still make sure we have a home to live in, we've gotta make sure to pay for groceries, or I've still gotta fuel up my vehicle, oh, and you know, I've gotta take care of my children and whatever they need and any medical things that come up, and all this seems to just be draining and overwhelming. Then we have our health and the health concerns we have of, of others the unknowns, the questions we have in seasons of difficulty when we consider our health and our wellness? Do we become consumed with it where we we try to allow our worry and, and anxiety around the area of health to drive us to go far beyond and thinking we possess some amount of or ability to, to make ourselves better than what we were before beyond what God designed for us? to be overwhelmed with the questions that are left unanswered, to look around at the economy and think all is lost, all is broken, everything's falling apart, nothing will ever get better, to be consumed with our politics, to be frustrated, to be overwhelmed, to think, well, if it was only, if these things got fixed, everything would be better. And we worry, cause great anxiety on ourselves as we deal with these things. And then, even as Paul started in this section, conflict. Knowing that we have conflict with somebody who maybe used to be close, or somebody at work, or someone within the community. Conflict causing worry and stress and anxiety. So as we take a moment and reflect and consider all the things that can worry us, we should naturally ask the question, from where does my help come from? Now obviously, we're gonna take the time and we're gonna look at what is scripture teaching us, what is Paul teaching us about this worry, about these anxieties, about these things that can consume our mind.
But I was reminded, even as I thought about this, some of the ways that we're taught to deal with worry, just from the things that sometimes we watch or hear. The first thing that came to my mind as I was reading through this passage and thinking about, okay, well, how do we respond? The first song, because I just tend to work in like, what song reminds me and helps me? Was Hakuna Matata from The Lion King. The great spiritual song, no, not at all, okay? Uh, but The Lion King, Hakuna Matata, right? It just, it's, well, it's just, just shrug it off. There's nothing, to, there's no worries, just leave it alone. The second song that came into my mind was as another great Disney song teaches us, just let it go, right? But here's the reality, ignoring the things that weigh on our minds and lead us to worry is no answer at all. It will not lead us to follow Jesus more and it definitely will not accomplish helping us work through our worry and our anxieties and our fears. So what does Paul lay out for us? talks about rejoicing in the Lord always, letting our reasonableness be known, to not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this, this first step in living for Jesus is also is right praying, He lays out for us this prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Prayer here carries this idea of adoration, devotion, worship. We should see our prayers as an opportunity to worship the God of the universe. Our Heavenly Father who cares intimately for each of us, our Savior who gave everything for us, and the Spirit who works within us to shape and mold us to be more like Jesus. So when we find ourselves worrying, our first action ought to be to get alone with God and worship him. Now I know this kind of seems backwards. That we would think, well, well I, I need to go to God right away with all my cares, all my concerns, all my worries. I, I think Paul puts here the order, the way it should be for our benefit because adoration, worship, is what's needed most in those first moments. We must remind ourselves and recognize the greatness and majesty of God. What we don't need reminded of in that moment is how our worry and anxiety is impacting our lives in that moment. We've got that going on in our head. What we need to do is go to the Lord in prayer, in adoration, in worship, and remind ourselves and recognize the greatness and majesty of God. We must remember all that he has done throughout all of time for his people to look back in scripture and see how he has cared so well for his people over and over and over again. We must realize that he's big enough to solve our problems. There's nothing beyond his capacity to help or comfort. Too often we rush into his presence in prayer and quickly tell him our needs when our first approach in reverence and worship to the God of the universe, whose joy it is to care well for his children should be one of adoration, of worship. Paul continues though, start with adoration, devotion, worship, and then 
your supplications. Supplication is our earnest sharing of our needs and our problems. What are those worries? What are those anxieties? What are those fears? This is our time to pour our hearts out to our Heavenly Father who we've just reminded ourselves of his goodness and greatness and his care and love for his people. While we're warned about heaping up empty phrases in Matthew 6 as if, if we just keep saying the right things or we say the right combination of words, somehow God will, will you, know, you know, look at me better and more favorably in this moment. We're not to do that. But Christ has shared with us as recorded in Matthew 7 that our Heavenly Father, he wants us to be earnest in our asking. Read the Psalms and and tell me there is no passion in the way the psalmist shares. You look at a lot of David's Psalms and there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of emotion coming out of him when he is crying out to the Lord in the most difficult seasons of his life. We should be open, not to be guarded in the moment that we come before the throne room of God and share our hearts with him. We should be open and free and passionate and emotional in pouring our hearts out to the Father. We see Jesus do this. Jesus passionately and emotionally pours out his heart to the Father in the garden before his crucifixion. Supplication is not a time to hold back as if our God is not big enough to handle the most intense moments of our lives. Supplication is a moment of spiritual intensity because we know we have a God who cares, who will provide an answer, and will be our comfort all along the way. So we don't go into sharing our hearts with the Lord with hesitation. We're all in, saying, Lord, I need you, and here's why. And then sprinkled right in there for us, Paul mentions, and with thanksgiving. Finally, we're told to pray with thanksgiving. And this particular phrase, it's kind of like, it's to be mingled in with everything else. This is our giving thanks to God. Why are we being reminded to be thankful, to bring thanksgiving to God? And I think some of it is just our, the reality of how we operate, right? We're really good at maybe saying, man, here's all my problems, and then when some of those problems are solved, do we return thanks? Is there that much intensity as we cried out? Is there that same intensity to seeking thanksgiving. Because if we're not careful, we're, we're eager in our intensity and quickness to go to God with our requests, but we can be slow in our response of thanks. So we're to be, pursue those things that which are pure and lovely, those things that are beautiful, attractive, something that is pleasing, and those things that are commendable which means that it is something worth talking about. Our mind should gravitate towards things that are praiseworthy, attractive, and those things that hold to the highest standards. And he finishes, whatever possesses virtue and praise, fill your mind up with these things. The Christian who fills their heart and mind with God's word will have a built-in radar for detecting wrong thought, 
right thinking leads to right living, and right thinking is the result of daily meditation on the word of God, being consumed with his things so they become our things. All of these things find their value in and can be pursued because of the work of Christ on our behalf. He works in us as we yield to him these items of right thinking. And then lastly, Paul finishes here with a couple of statements. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So as we consider living for Jesus, we're left with two final thoughts from this passage. Those things that are learned and received, those things that we take as we are instructed from the word of God, as we spend time in his word and our understanding grows and who God is and how he created us to operate, but also in the things that we have heard and seen. Right living means I not only know and understand, but that I am actively living out what God says is for my good and am an example of these things towards others. We should be not only living pursuing Christ, but reflecting well towards others so that we could even be like Paul here who says, listen, you know these things that have been instructed. You've been taught these things. Live them out so that others will look at your life and practice these things and experience the peace of God. Philippians 4 has been kind of tagged as we think about these things of right praying, right thinking, and right living. These are the the conditions of having a secure mind and victory over worry. They're the the building, the, the, the foundation of pursuing Christ, living for Christ. Philippians 4 is kind of known as the peace chapter in the New Testament. There's another passage in James 4 that's kind of known as the the chapter of war, chapter of conflict. And it begins with a question. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? And James explains the causes of war. He says it's wrong praying. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. It's, it's wrong living. James 4, 4, you know that friendship with the world is enmity, opposed, hostile with God. It's, it's wrong thinking. James 4, 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So James 4 shares with us what wrong praying, wrong thinking, wrong living leads to. And so what we're left with considering is understanding that there is, there is no middle ground here. Either we yield our hearts and our minds to the Spirit of God and follow Jesus in practicing right praying, right thinking, and right living, which leads to the peace of God, or we yield, we give ourselves to the flesh and find ourselves torn apart by worry. Here's the good news. As children of God, because of the person of Jesus Christ, we are no longer captured by sin. There is no need to worry. With the peace of God to guard us and the God of peace to guide us, why worry? 
if he's answered the biggest questions of life, why worry? If he promises to, to comfort us in the most difficult times of our lives, why worry? If he loves to love you, if he loves to care for you, if he loves to guide you through every aspect of life, why worry? So as we consider how we live this out, we started with that idea of disunity. And it starts there, we should pursue unity. It's easy to allow discord and petty rivalry to enter into our relationships. We should take the time to consider the status of our current relationships. What do they look like? And are there principles we looked at from what Paul is sharing here that can provide correction and healing to those strained relationships? Remember that we represent how the gospel changes our priorities. Well, others want what you and I have. And that first line is often the relationships that we have with other people. The second thing for us to consider is at the end, Paul's able to call other believers to follow his own example as a follower of Christ. We've kind of been around this culture of Christianity that says, okay, it's a you know, personal choice, it's personal faith, and we've kind of put it in this little box that this is just my personal thing, you do what you want, but this, you know, this is my treasure, and it can be yours if you want it, but you know, we keep it protected. Now Paul, Paul is saying, look, look at my life. Let my life be an example as a follower of Christ. So the question we should consider is in what ways might our transparency in following Christ help and encourage others to do the same? In closing, I wanna share a story behind um, a hymn, probably many of us know, All to Jesus I Surrender. I love to look back at why were certain songs written. I think it just helps us understand better where the, the, the intent of the song. There's a story here about uh, the song I Surrender All. The lyrics of this song were written by Judson Van Deventer around 1890 and later on put with music. But Van, uh, Van Deventer was an accomplished musician and worked as an art teacher and supervisor of, an, of arts in a local public school where he lived. Records reveal that he was an active member in his church and involved in evangelistic meetings and it was through this time and his faithful service and involvement in the church that he actually had individuals encourage him to leave his field of teaching of art to become an evangelist. Van de Venter wrote uh, later this, he says, the song was written, speaking of I Surrender All, while I was conducting a meeting at East Palestine, Ohio. For some time I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last the pivotal hour of my life came and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered down deep in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart and touching a tender chord he caused me to sing. And so the song I Surrender All was born. 
And it's no doubt that it's probably encouraged and challenged many followers of Christ. Not to necessarily go into evangelistic service, but to consider the worries and fears that weigh us down and to consider surrendering it all to Jesus. One such person I recently read about was Bill Borden. Bill was heir to the Borden fortune. He spent a year traveling the world after he graduated from high school. And after this time abroad, he came to discover and be changed by the best news. And the account of his conversion is as follows. On July 2nd, 1905, he attended meetings in London on the subject of salvation. And Bill was deeply moved. After the sermon, a soloist sang, I surrender all. With depth of feeling, Bill stood with several others and sang the chorus, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. He was 17 years old when he gave his life to Christ. He returned home, gave away vast amounts of his fortune, and prepared for missionary service among the Muslims of China. Though he died of spinal meningitis in Egypt en route to China at age 25, his story has influenced generations of young people of over 100 years. His life slogan was no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Can we take all our worries, our fears, our anxieties, and distractions of this world and surrender it all to God? to live for Jesus with no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to thee, I freely give. I will ever love and trust you in your presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with your love and power. Let your blessing fall on me. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us walk through and understand how The reality of this world can be overwhelming and and can consume us. Lord, as we respond to these things, as we desire to live for you, may these be the building blocks that help us pursue you in the midst of the ups and downs of life. May even this morning, as we consider these things, there's those who have yet to make that step in pursuing you. Would they come to understand how Christ has given them everything? that they would turn from their sin and choose to follow Christ. For those of us whose desire and has been a lifetime of living for you, would we be reminded of these simple truths, that wherever our minds are at, wherever distractions have found themselves, that we would in this moment surrender all, all to you, our blessed Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. 